0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dean is being mobbed as our ruleful draw. And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in, arm in arm. Tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. foul territory. The game is over, and the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years, and now they can really cheer. Now the pitch, swung on, lined to deep left field. It is goal. You should see the celebration. The Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two run homer down the left field line, clearing the 19 foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our tribe history presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland since 1901 and beyond now here's your host indians team historian jeremy fedor hello tribe fans and we are back for a new year of our tribe history presented by progressive i am your host team historian jeremy fedor now on this episode, we are traveling back to 1902 at the corner of Lexington and East 66 for seven exciting walk-off wins, and we're going to talk about some of the quirks of early 1900s baseball because a lot of these game recaps include fun little anecdotes. And as I mentioned before, it's a nice little fallback project when I need a topic for a podcast. Why not cover all of the walk-offs we've ever had in our history. Everyone remembers the 95 ones, but really, how many people remember the 1902 walk-offs? I'm going to say not very many. Now, the bright spot of the 1902 season was the acquisition of Nap Lajewe. And there's a bit of a long story as to how Cleveland acquired him. And you can hear the cliff note version in my first podcast. We kind of run over that and how Knapp technically really wasn't allowed to play in the state of Pennsylvania, and you'll see that in one of the the clippings. He ran a little bit late because they had to go around the state. (laughs) Nevertheless, though, it was one of those franchise-altering acquisitions. Um, On the spectrum of a Trish speaker uh, for the uh, club, I mean, it really solidified them as a, I'm not going to say a contender right in 1902 because they weren't, but they had the best player or one of the best players uh, in the game. And also in 1902 was the debut of 22-year-old future Hall of Famer, Eddie Joss. Now, the bad part of 1902 was that Cleveland still wasn't a great club. Uh, They ended up going a cool 69 and 67, so they finished above 500, and they were good enough for fifth place in the American League, but again, not... uh, not challenging for the AL uh, pennant. And without further ado, the first walk-off of 1902 took place on May 13th. The last place, Cleveland Blues, Broncos, whatever you wanted to call them, uh, were playing in front of a 1,000 fans at League Park when they took on the St. Louis Browns. It was a scoreless game heading into the 8th. That's when the Browns led off with Barry McCormick, who singled the center, He was eventually forced out at second when Joe Sugden hit a grounder that looked like a double play. However, Sugden beat the throw and was called safe at first. Jack Harper laid down a sacrifice bunt and was thrown out. Then Jesse Burkett followed with a grounder that first baseman Bob Wood muffed on the throw and gave Burkett the bag. Emmett Heydrich sent both Sugden and Jesse home with what was described as a sun two bagger over the left fielder's head. Cleveland got out of the inning with only two runs when John Anderson flew out to left field. Now, in the bottom of that inning, Ollie Pickering started it off with a single to center. McCarthy flew out to the right fielder, and Bob Wood grounded out to the third baseman, but that moved Pickering to second. Up then was Hall of Famer, or future Hall of Famer, Elmer Flick, and he laid down a bunt that sent Pickering to third and Elmer to first. Then they pulled off the old razzle-dazzle with a double steal that scored Pickering and sent Flick to second. Uh, Second baseman Frank Bonner then showed he was the right man for the the minute and hit a double to right. Flick scored, and the inning was over after Bill Bradley grounded out to the shortstop, and Cleveland had tied the game 2-2, headed to the ninth. In the ninth, the Browns put another run across the board. Uh, Future Hall of Famer Bobby Wallace led off the inning with a single, And he eventually scored on a sacrifice fly that gave St. Louis a 3-2 advantage going into the bottom of the ninth. Going into the ninth, Cleveland needed one run to tie it and two to win. Leading off the inning was Harry Bemis, who sent a grounder to the third baseman, which was then booted and Bemis was safe. The next batter popped up, what was probably a sack bun attempt, and that was out number one. Then the pitcher was pinch hit for, and the batter struck out, so they were down to their last out. Uh, The pitcher from the Blues then walked Ollie Pickering. So up to bat was Jack McCarthy, who hit a routine grounder to the shortstop, who then proceeded to boot the ball that loaded up the bases. And up to bat was Bobby Wood with the game on the line. Wood's hit actually should have been a routine fly, but it landed between both of the St. Louis Browns outfielders, and the Plain Dealer actually opened up their game recap with a quirky retelling of the event and they made up some some quotes and there's probably a literary reference in here that i'm missing but it said my dear gaston hedrick you catch it no my dear alphonse jones i would prefer that you catch it but my dear gaston it is your ball pardon me alphonse but i'm certain the ball belongs to you the interaction then caused bobby wood's fly ball to drop and allowed bemis and pickering to score the winning runs it's not the most exciting walk off but A walk-off, nonetheless, that was uh, snatching the victory from the jaws of defeat. The second walk-off took place on July 30th. Returning from a 5-8 road trip, a road trip that included a 5-game and a 3-game losing streak, the Plain Dealer started their game recap off with 3,132 fans at the Dunham Avenue Grounds, or League Park, who were perfectly willing to forgive the Clevelands for all of the defeats they sustained upon the trip just brought to a close. A few more exciting games have ever been played in Cleveland. And when the ninth inning came around and saw the local score, the only run of the game, there was a happy crowd of rooters. And with all these walk-offs, it's fun to see that every time they have one, the, the paper then emphasizes that this was the most exciting game ever played at League Park, and you've never seen a, a game like this, and you'll see that in the other game recaps. That it's always the most uh, fascinating and exciting, I guess, because it's the most recent. Um, but definitely a line they use over and over again. Now the game itself started an hour late uh, due to a freight wreck on the B and O Railroad, 45 miles east of Pittsburgh. The Cleveland team, Chicago, and Washington were all on the train together that was behind the wreck. So their train was delayed for five hours, and when Cleveland arrived in Pittsburgh, they missed their connections. Uh, The challenges of of having Lajouet avoid Pennsylvania was also an issue. The paper mentioned that Lajouet and Bernard had not arrived, although they had left Baltimore Tuesday afternoon, coming by way of Wheeling so as not to step upon Pennsylvania soil. The men sent a telegram that they have missed connections at Wheeling and could not reach Cleveland before night. So again, it goes back to Nap not being allowed to play in Pennsylvania because of, of legal issues and, and, and contractual issues. And nevertheless, though, as the Chicago Tribune put it, it looked as if there would be no game when at 3.30 o'clock the teams had not appeared. But they arrived at the grounds at 4.15 o'clock and the game was started close to 5. So I can't imagine getting to the ballpark expecting a 3.30 first pitch and having to wait almost two hours to uh, see a game and not even knowing if there was going to be a game. I mean, you don't have cell phones, so who knew where the team was? It was kind of a wait and see until they they kick everyone out, but luckily people stuck around. The starting pitcher for Cleveland was Earl Moore. Now, earlier in the month, Moore had hurt his fingers in Boston, though the paper didn't indicate what actually had happened. I was kind of expecting to read about a comebacker to the mound, but nothing was written down. But in this game, it mentioned he had had sore fingers. So instead, though, during the game, Moore was, was on fire, and the paper said, In fact, Cy Young or Rube Waddell could not have displayed greater nerve than did Moore, even when the bases were filled and such a timely batter as George Davis at bat. Chicago's paper mentioned that Earl Moore had all kinds of curves and speed and kept shooting the ball over the plate with cannonball speed. Aided by his fine support, he allowed the white stockings to only three hits. And this particular game went to the ninth with both teams carrying goose eggs. Now to start the bottom of the ninth, Bill Bradley flew out and then McCarthy singled over the head of the shortstop. Hickman hit one to the second baseman and Daly had a chance to tag McCarthy and throw out Hickman for a double play, but he booted the ball. So then came Elmer Flick and after fouling off a few pitches, He sent one over to the right right field corner for the win. And the paper mentioned, I think he could have had a triple, but obviously you're not going to keep running after you score the run. Kind of like when Jay Bruce had the walk-off in the 22nd uh, win of the win streak. He was credited with a double, although I'm not really sure how that happened because the run had scored before he was even at second. But nevertheless, Moore picked up the win going... At that time, 9 and 12. He went nine innings pitched, three hits, four walks, and five strikeouts. And not too long after the July 30th win was the next walk off, and actually it was a series of walk offs starting on August 4th, 1902. And who but Earl Moore was back on the mound for another walk off classic. Now, before the game, he reported to his manager. Uh, He said, I know it's a hard time to say it, but Bill, I have a lame arm, said Earl Moore yesterday afternoon, just previous to the game with Washington. Glad to hear it, replied Moore. Last time you had a lame arm, you shut Detroit out. Just keep your arm lame and we will win in a walk today. And sure enough, Moore was on top of his game. He went nine innings, striking out three and walking two, picking up his 10th win of the season. Now during the game, Cleveland struggled to move men. Only one man to third in the first eight innings, and Cleveland was sloppy on the bases. In the first inning, Bradley singled, but was picked off of first. And it seems whenever something like hap- like that happens, the next batter gets a big hit. And sure enough, Lagway then proceeded to hit a double, and by all the newspaper accounts, it would have scored Bradley. So going into the ninth, the score was knotted at zero, and Cleveland had a, a shot to win it in walk off fashion. And leading off the inning was Elmer Flick, who ended up flying out. Uh, following him was Jack McCarthy, who sent one down to short. Uh, the ball was booted by the shortstop named Bones Eli. So, why was he named Bones? Well, clicked on the old uh, saber bio, and it turns out he was six foot one and a buck fifty five. So, I think you can get the picture that he was a very uh, skinny gentleman. Then the next batter ended up flying out. Uh, to uh, left center, uh, which brought up Bob Wood, who singled, and that moved McCarthy to third. Now off the bat was the pitcher, Earl Moore, with the, the dead arm. Now he most uh, he may have had a dead arm, but his bat was quite a, quite a bit alive. Uh, the paper had said he had already made one hit that was thought to be about his limit. Uh, so it so said the infield was playing deep, and Moore dumped the slow one just out of the pitcher's reach. The ball rolled to uh, Bones, who was unable to throw out the pitcher as uh, Moore beat the third of first, so he really helped his own cause and and got the game-winning hit on a slow dribbler to short. Again, not the most exciting walk-off, but it was a win nonetheless, and from a pitcher to boot. After the game, the Washington Post noted that after Earl Moore had pitched masterly ball for nine innings, not allowing a single senator to get or even get near the home plate, He has the complete satisfaction of winning his own game in the last half of the ninth. Now, the Cleveland manager, though, was in a bit of a quandary as to who to use for the next game. Eddie Joss had been sent home to Wisconsin, and then Bernard had uh, been allowed to go back to his home in Buffalo, so Cleveland was running low on pitchers. So again, the next walk-off was the next day on August 5th, 1902, and Cleveland was keeping up with the magic. Though the Washington Times thought otherwise, it said, if there is a team that deserves to be beaten, it was the Clevelands, for they played very amateurish ball in the early part, making a present of five runs at the start. And this game was a a little bit of back and forth, as you can tell. Um, Cleveland surrendered a few runs but got a few runs back. The Cleveland manager ended up deciding on using a pitcher named Otto Hess And the paper said he was a youthful twirler by the name of Hess who was picked up by armor while the team was in Columbus on Sunday. And Hess is actually a very interesting story. He was born in Switzerland in 1878 and emigrated to the U.S. in 1888. And when he was in the U.S. and was a little bit older, he enlisted in the U.S. Army at the outbreak of the Spanish-American War and was stationed in the Philippines from 1898 to 1900. He eventually served in World War One as well, so he's one of the few players to serve in both conflicts. And back to the game, though, Hess was pretty wild to start the game, and the Senators picked up on the fact that he wasn't the best fielding pitcher. They ended up laying down 12 bunts against him, four as hits and seven as sacrifices, while another one went as an error for Hess. It was said that finally Hess was advised by Lajouet that there were several other men in the field who were drawing salaries from the Cleveland club and that he should not try to get every one of the bunts himself. And after that, the fielding got a little bit, a little tighter. So once Hess wasn't running around like a chicken with its head cut off, they were able to field those balls a little better. And as I mentioned, the Senators went up 3-0 after the first and Cleveland cut it to 3-2 after the third. Then it was 5-2 after the fourth, 6-2 after the sixth six to four after the seventh and then tied at six to six after the eighth the paper did indicate though that the hero of the game was of course the guy with the hardest name to pronounce and I'm again try it i, I might have butchered it in the previous game recap but john gonshower g-o-n-c-h-n-a-u-e-r and if you Click his profile, uh, baseball reference, and go to his uh, Sabre bio. It mentions how he was one of the worst professional baseball players of all time. So at least he had a a decent game in 1902. Nevertheless, though, the paper exclaimed it was Ganschauer Day at League Park yesterday, and right nobly did the little shortstop carry off the honors both at bat and in the field. Uh, it was made that he made both his hits and all of his sensational plays after he had broken the little finger of his left hand. The accident occurred in the third inning Cleveland native Ed Delahanty. And if you don't know anything about Ed or his family, they were, they were several of the brothers. They were all professional baseball players. And Ed has a heck of a story. The author of the pitch that killed wrote a book about Ed as well. And, I guess to kind of spoil it a little bit, Ed fell off a train or was pushed off a train and went over Niagara Falls. And what's actually interesting too is somewhat recently his uh, luggage was up at auction on one of the auction houses. So you can Google that, but it's one of those stories was he pushed, was he, did he jump? Uh, But nevertheless, he's buried out. It's either cavalry or Riverside. I forget which cemetery he's in, but, um, yeah, back to uh, uh, the, the the game though. It said uh, Cleveland native Ed Delhante was batting, and he struck a liner to the left that bore a through ticket for the fence. Ganschnauer jumped and threw threw up his hand to pull it down. When they met, blammo! It shot off his glove and started out. But he started out for the ball whose momentum had been stopped. So again, he took that ball off his uh, apparently his pinky part of the glove, which must not have been padded too well. Again, going into the 10th with one out, Ganschnauer again doubled and scored when Bones threw a ball over Delahanty's head on Wood's easy grounder. So again, another walk-off that was less than a big hit or anything, just another routine play that was fumbled and sent Ganschnauer home and the fans were excited. But Again, it was a pretty exciting game. You know, they traded uh, runs and put up some uh, high-scoring games. And you were in for a treat if you had tickets for these consecutive games because on August 6th, Cleveland walked it off again. And this was their third walk-off in three days where Cleveland sent Charlie Smith, who was a local Sandlot boy, to the mound to make his major league debut against future Hall of Famer Rube Waddell and going back to like early 1900s baseball, it's it's fun to go into these game recaps and, and see these little tidbits they had after the game, just uh, observations, because it's it kind of blows your mind, I guess, when you think about where we're at now and, and where they were then. And uh, Charlie Smith is kind of one of those stories. And, you know, Saber Bio mentions he was born in Cleveland in 1880 and was picked out of an amateur club, the Cleveland Wheel Club. And In that early period, Cleveland had a a tremendous amateur baseball league. And you you see those pictures from Brookside Park and and the 100,000 people that were supposedly there watching that game. But according to the paper, Smith initially had no plans of pitching that day. It was said that Smith was in the bleachers with the intention of witnessing the game when Armour sent for him and asked him to put on a uniform. After he had pitched a few balls to Wood, he asked him if he would pitch. So Smith was willing, and the result is known. His signature will probably be affixed to a Cleveland contract this morning. He ended up pitching two more games after this, and then um, actually had a 10-year major league career, so one of those uh, sandlots to majors stories that were not too uncommon of that era. But again, a story of a guy sitting in the bleachers Getting pulled out to uh, pitch that game, usually it's not a recipe for success. And the paper said, while not possessing a great amount of speed, he has some excellent curves, uses a change of pace effectively, and better yet, never loses his head. For a youngster making his debut in the fastest of company, he showed remarkable nerve, even in the tightest of situations. And this was also uh, the famous Ruud first appearance in Cleveland. He struck out 12, however the attendance was noted as being low due to the poor weather um, and threatening weather, but usually Rube would attract fans. He was quite the character, and you kind of see that in the first inning as well. In this back-and-forth game, um, Cleveland scored some runs, and the Philly scored some runs, and again, obviously, Cleveland ends up walking it off, but in the first inning, uh, Charlie Hickman crushed a two-run homer over the left-field fence. Not to uh, be shown up, Rube played into the mishap. The paper said, Rube is certainly a character. When the crowd was not kidding him, he was having a little fun at the expense of the fans. In the first inning, when Hickman made his home run, he joined in the applause, clapping his hands and repeatedly waving his cap. And there's stories about Rube getting distracted if he saw puppies or shiny objects, or if he heard uh, a fire truck going down the street, he would stop what he was doing and go chase it. So, again, there's there's probably more you can dive into with, with Rube. Again, going to the ninth inning, first uh, batter Smith he f- uh, struck out, and then Bay beat out a bunt, and Bill Bradley walked, which sent Nap Lajoie to the plate, and most likely he's the guy you want at the plate with the game on the line, where he ended up driving in the winning run with a single. And it also mentioned that There was uncertainty as who was going to pitch the next game because, again, Earl Moore was complaining of a sore arm. And if you go on Baseball Reference, you'll see that Moore did pitch the next game and he ended up winning again with his sore arm. And we got two more walk-offs, the next one being August 27th, which was a few weeks later. And, again, it was Cleveland against the Philadelphia Athletics. And this time the hero of the game was Charlie Hickman, who ended up recording a triple, double, and two singles. So very close to being the first Cleveland player to hit for the cycle, but not quite. And like any exciting game of this period in Cleveland, the Plain Dealer described it as one of the best. It said, The game was one that many considered the best game of the season. Be as it may, there is no question that it was one of the most exciting as well and one of the best played games ever witnessed at League Park. So again, every time there's a walk-off, it is the best game uh, at League Park, and this was no exception. Now, heading to the ninth, Cleveland was trailing one to nothing When Hickman led off with a triple to right, which was his fourth hit of the game, Elmer Flick then singled him home. McCarthy popped a single and allowed Flick to reach third. The next batter, our boy uh, Gotchenauer, was intentionally walked. Wood hit to Murphy, and Flick was out of the plate. Wood was still some distance from first, and Shrek made the attempt to secure the double play. The ball, however, struck Wood between the shoulders, and before it could be recovered, McCarthy had crossed home plate with the winning run. So, uh, again, the winning run was scored on a attempted double play, except the ball pegged uh, Wood in the back and trickled away from the first baseman. So, again, not the... Uh, Most exciting, but it was a unique way to win, Uh, much like that balk-off we had, I think it was that in 2014, maybe, against Detroit. Always a, a unique way to win. As I mentioned earlier, too, the observations after the games are always fun, and one of them mentioned that Jack McCarthy had joined Ollie Pickering's Ancient Order of Dog Fanciers and showed up yesterday leading a Boston Terrier, only five months old, so he brought a puppy to the ballpark and and even guys now like to bring their dogs around. And then speaking of dogs too, it mentioned that previous to the game, the crowd was kept from becoming impatient by the antics of a medium-sized dog who joined the blues in their practice and fielded his position without an, an error. No man on the team covered more ground than he did. And there were several yells from the stand sign him on one occasion. When the athletics were upon the field, warming up, he grabbed the ball and rushed into the stand to his owner. So again, the rules were a bit lax uh, in 1902, and and for a while there, that you know, it was a puppy palooza of some nature where this dog was on the field and uh, ended up taking the ball away from the athletics, which again uh, is almost unfathomable nowadays. And the final walk off of September or of 1902 took place on September 13th, and this one actually. is a, I guess we'll say a historic walk off and we'll get to that in a second, but the St. Louis Browns were coming to Cleveland and they were actually in the pennant chase. However, their hopes were dashed after Cleveland ended up taking a double header pitching for Cleveland was again, future hall of famer, Addie Joss. We ended up walking three in the first, but was able to get out of it with only one runner scoring when uh, bill Bradley made a wild throw that allowed the runner to score but he only gave up hits in the third and tenth inning. And in that fourth inning, Lajue reached on a wild throw and Bradley scored. So, again, some runs scored on, on both sides. And I forgot to mention, this was the second game of the doubleheader, So Cleveland took the first one. And I saw that uh, there was only a five-minute break in between the games. So uh, nowadays, you know, you have the... I think it's over an hour before they they get back at it. But um, it did mention that Jesse Burkett, who was of the Cleveland Spiders, was amusing the crowd with his jigs and other antics as he was coaching as well. So, again, some of those observations from the game. But having a five-minute break is uh, pretty wild when you think about it. In the sixth inning, Bay and Elmer Flick had quite an argument about a fly that Flick dropped after a long run. Each were arguing that he yelled he would take it, and uh, they kept it up for a while until uh, Lazio ended up coming over to them and telling him to knock it off. He said, It did not cost us any runs, so what is the use talking about it? Maybe that's some foreshadowing in his leadership skills that he was eventually the player manager for Cleveland for a, a few years, not in the not too distant future from this. So, again, some of that leadership skills from, from Knapp. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these walk-offs weren't the most exciting. It was you know, random throws that careened off you know, runners' backs and, and muffed uh, grounders. But this one had more of the, the workings of a exciting walk-off that we, uh, fans go nuts for today. And that is the walk-off home run. In the paper said, it was an almost indescribable scene that ensued yesterday afternoon at Lee Park when Charlie Hickman, the popular and stalwart first baseman of the Blues, landed one of Wee Willie's set-offs, straight ones, and sent it sailing over the left field fence for a home run. It was in that last half of the 10th inning when the the run won the greatest game that had ever been witnessed at Leak Park this season. So that other game, be damned, this was the greatest uh, game of the season, which I'll agree, you know, walk-off home runs the most exciting. But it's that scarcely had Hickman crossed the plate that 3,000 enthusiastic rooters surrounded him, slapping him upon the back until he must have been black and blue and finally raising him to their shoulders, carried him in triumph off the field. Never before was a player accorded such an ovation in Cleveland. So again, the line between fans in the stands and fans just milling about on the field was pretty thin. And upon reaching the clubhouse, Lajway came over and said... Well, Hick, old boy, you can thank me for that. I could have made the home run, but I know you were going to do it, so I thought I would give you a chance to make good. So Lajue having a little fun at at Hickman's expense. Um, And again, the first walk-off home run in uh, in Cleveland American League history. Now, where that ball ended up, you know, it's one of those, not that anyone would have thought in 1902, hey, we're going to save this particular walk-off home run ball, but uh, I'm sure... it just rolled somewhere, and, and who knows if some kids picked it up and played with it, or by that time that ball was probably already beat up. But one of those things I tend to think about, that uh, if you could have a time machine and just go sit on the street and wait for it, it would be be pretty neat. And those are the walk-offs from 1902, which includes the very first walk-off home run. So that's uh, exciting. And a random bit of Cleveland baseball history as to who was the First walk off home run, and uh, Charlie Hickman. So there you go. Maybe you can win a bet on that or something. But again, going to the bigger picture, there's a lot of names in these on these teams that have sort of been forgotten to, to history. So it's it's fun to to drag them out and you know read what the papers were saying and how fans viewed these guys. Because again, a lot of them were were players that stuck around for a few years. Now, obviously, people still remember. Lajway and Eddie Joss, but uh, you know, people remember Charlie Hickman? Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but uh, now he's on the, uh, the tip of your tongue and, and in your head. want to thank you again for joining me on this episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.